From the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. Today, we have two fabulous educators joining us from two project-based learning schools. Uh, Lillian Sue is the founding principal of Latitude High School in Oakland, California, and Angela Daniels is an instructional coach and design thinking project strategist at Sci High in Seminole County, Florida. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Justin. And Lillian, wonderful to have you as well. I'm excited for the conversation. Um, and we're lucky that the two of you know each other. Both of these uh, uh, educators work in schools that are supported by the XQ School Network, so they've had a chance to network and learn from one another as well. Um, today, we want to talk about um, remote learning, how it's going, what we're learning, what kinds of lessons we're picking up this spring that we could apply to this fall. Um, Lillian, maybe we can start with you. Um, when schools closed in Oakland, um, and you had this sort of scramble, like what was your sense of what was the initial plan? What was it that you were most hoping to be able to preserve from your school culture and curriculum and things like that as you were transitioning to distance learning in March? Sure, I think first and foremost, I think giving students a sense of predictability and consistency was something that we really prioritized as well as um, small groups so that there would be space and airtime for students to be able to process with each other and still be in community. So I think those were some of the core values that we were really trying to go after in the first days of remote learning. And the small groups, were those organized from within classes or did you have, was, was a class a small enough group as it was already constituted, or did you have to sort of find additional staff to be able to break classes up into smaller units? How did you make the small groups happen? Yeah, so what we did is we actually, as much as possible, tried to um, preserve the same time blocks but so, for example, if a ninth grade student had design engineering uh, in the morning from nine to 11, they would still have design engineering sometime in that time block, but be a shorter amount of time. So maybe 30 minutes on a Google Hangout with a smaller cohort of five to eight students. And so as much as possible, we were trying to give them that consistency, but we were also trying to find a sweet spot in terms of screen time. So we thought kind of shorter blocks. But and then that would also enable smaller groups um, of classmates from within the same pod. Great. So you have, you have a block schedule at Latitude and you basically kind of slotted everyone into a portion of their block. Um, so using the same times, but uh, but with smaller groups. Angela, what did things look like at Sci High? What was the plan um, when when the Florida governor closed schools? We were actually fortunate in that um, the decision came down during our spring break, or at least um, the impending decision was was there during spring break. So we were given two weeks um, uh, to really plan how we were going to move forward. And just like um, Lily mentioned with Latitudes, one of the things we needed to do was create a consistency and remove as much ambiguity as possible um, because our students were really reporting that that feeling of unsettled was um, challenging and almost insurmountably unchallenging uh, challenging at the time. So um, what we did was we actually created, we took all of our classes, put them in one, um, one frame on what we call eCampus, which is essentially a clever um, portal. And we, um, and we made all of the classes look identical, essentially. You would find all of your lessons in the same place, your curriculum map would be visual, um, and, and made it as easy as possible for the students to be able to access their, um, their learning modules. 
But on top of that, um, sort of like Latitudes did also, we knew that our kids need, really needed a lot of community and a lot of um, adult community support. So um, we offered classes, building that consistency, but not in the same kind of time blocks that they had at school. As a matter of fact, some of our advisement classes ended up being um, at nine o'clock at night. It was one. It was our most popular time slot, actually, and they would play Pictionary and um, and do things like that. But we maintained the integrity of our advisement while opening them, so that if a student wanted to drop in on another advisement, another adult. Um, advisement, they were welcome to do that. And we also opened up all of the classes for the same for the same thing. So you could drop into a class, get some help with that class, or you could just drop in on a class um, to say hi to the teacher or the kids that are that were there. Um, so it became a really large learning community um, with an extremely open door policy. Will you tell us about what advisement looked like beforehand? Um, this sounds like a really interesting model. Is it like what other people call advisories or? Yeah, um, so advisement was um, kids were randomly assigned to an adult, and uh, we largely work on SEL and things like that, but also um, really pushing that the equity issues and giving people space uh, to talk about things that are important to them, helping them connect things with their own personal feelings of purpose um, and community inside those spaces. So, and we would do that um, every week. We'd have there was a, a at one time we were actually doing advisement daily this last year we were doing it twice a week um and so over the covid term we actually each advisor had three different sessions placed at random periods during the week but they would always maintain that like for instance i had a four o'clock advisement on wednesday it was always four o'clock on wednesday and so um the students would drop in largely my advisement but sometimes um other people's advisement students would drop in so um yeah, it looked a little different. With a colleague in the Boston Public Schools, Nima Avashia, we did a design session where we asked uh, 15 of her middle school students, along with two of her graduates who were then in high school, um, to do some design work to start planning next year. Um, sort of on the on the principle that you know there's exactly one generation of students that have done remote learning during a pandemic and they have some real wisdom that we have to um, listen to you know there's lots of stuff that adult educators know about educational systems but none of us has ever been students during the kinds of circumstance we have right now and definitely the kinds of things that you're talking about about building and maintaining community connections you know for these middle schoolers was like absolutely the top of mind kinds of things um, one girl said man I wish I had a button that I could press and a teacher would just appear. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty sure we can't build that button, but it does seem like a schedule of advisements where there's kind of always a teacher around is the kind of thing that we could build um, for the fall. And then we thought a lot about, I mean, the students want to talk a lot about all the ways in which like clubs and sports and teams weren't going to be able to work the same way in the fall. And it's, you know, it seems like 9 p.m. Pictionary games are like exactly what middle school students, high school students need to have accessible to them um, in order to continue to feel uh, that that sense of community. I mean, a, it's a real tribute to the teachers who did not um, at the beginning of the year sign up to be available to their students at 9 p.m. on a Thursday night once a week. Um, but uh, but I think those kinds of community building things are just going to be incredibly important in the year ahead. Um, Lillian, in the in the model that you built, sort of what worked and for who? 
Um, what what kinds of students responded really positively to the designs that you put together? And then, you know, what are what are what are the mismatches that you found between your remote learning plans and, and the students who had the hardest time um, with with adjusting? Yeah, I think I would say that um, for the most part, we've had about 95% daily attendance um, on our kind of three Google Hangouts a day. And so for the most part, I think because the groups were smaller and so we could really kind of adapt and personalize for the kids in those small groups, I think that it worked for the majority of students. Um, we were able, I think that what we prioritize in those spaces is opportunities for discussion, still being able to do collaboration, um, collaborative problem solving, Socratic seminars, as well as continuing a lot of our project work so that students still felt a sense of purpose and meaning behind the work that um, they were being asked to do. So I think that I would say that um, for about 95% of our students, I think the model has worked quite well. We just did three kind of town hall meetings with our families to get feedback on the year. And overwhelmingly, I think families have really um, appreciated the structures that we created and um, are kind of excited that we'll be building on those for the fall. The students that hasn't worked for, I would say, I think are ones who have really struggled with um, some depression as a result of everything that's happened and are really kind of struggling with motivation and purpose during this time. And so for a lot of those students, we've been talking a lot about what does radical differentiation look like? How do we start from a place of um, what matters most to them right now? And for each of those students, that might be a different lever. Um, it might start from focusing on kind of what are their future plans and really kind of starting working on a passion project or a capstone project that's going to be connected to that personal interest right now and not doing kind of what's happening in the regular classes for the moment and putting that on pause. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that we're kind of looking at each student individually for those 5% for whom the larger model isn't working right now. What is the staffing for that look like? Are you having sort of like a like a core kind of special response staff working across those five percent? Are you asking your design engineering teachers to also you know raise their hand and say, can you pick up um, kind of one or two of your advisees or, or or students who you had had some kind of connection with? Or um, what what does it look like to reach to to figure out the way to get uh, adults working in in that intensive radical? Um, differentiation? Yeah, I would say that I think it's primarily um, our dean of students and myself really reaching out to the families and having those conversations and then coming up with sort of the beginnings of action plans that we then bring back to the larger team. So actually, just before this call, um, I was on the call with kind of three students for whom um, it hasn't been working in terms of the, the um, regular model. And so we've been working on a differentiated plan for them as well as a plan for the summer. And so today was when those students came back and presented to the larger um, staff of teachers um, what is it, what their summer is going to look like that might look different than everybody else's as well as going into the fall. Um, but it took a lot of coaching before that with the Dean of Students and myself to kind of prepare them for today, right? And a lot of just conversations and dialogue about what's happening on the home front and what does feel motivating in this moment. That's great. No, it's really terrific to be able to, to provide that support and then give students some leadership and some ownership and agency in, in charting their path forward. Um, Angela, at Sci High, um, sort of same kind of questions to you. What are the things that feel like, oh, wow, this is really landing and working for students? And what are the, what are the things that feel, um, you know, where, where, are the, where are the points of disconnect felt most urgently? First of all, Lillian, that's terrific. Like everything you just said is so wonderful for the students. Um, 
So our one of the things that we found hugely successful, and we probably um, should have guessed it, the transparency of expectations with regard to the students. When you're building classes online, the level of um, uh, foreknowledge that the kids have to have and transparency about what you're hoping to get from them um, is hugely important for um, the vast majority of our students. And actually that all by itself um, corrected a myriad of issues that um, that we we could have had. Um, I also concur if the students are struggling um, with a mental health issue or even um, larger than their own um, depression or mental health, if they're having a familial um, health or mental health issue, uh, then everything exponentially increases. And I think what has been, while I would never obviously want any of our students to struggle in this way, what's been wonderful though, is that teachers are really getting a front row view of the fact that we really don't understand what our kids are coming to us with and their coping mechanisms may be miraculous, um, but that's what we're really looking at. And we have to remember that because we're looking at the shell they've created, doesn't mean that we really understand the struggle that's going on there. Um, and I would say another thing that I've really appreciated here that we've had to make some adjustments when we have a student who's struggling, but, but has a intrinsic motivation to succeed at some point, but just can't leverage that right at this moment. Um, you know, we've just really encouraged our teachers, like you need to really be clear about what it is that you're hoping that those students can demonstrate with regard to that skill or that content and, and, and be, <laughs> Be very selective about that skill. Now is not the time, in other words, to bundle eight skills together. Pick the skill that's the most important for you and allow that student to offer you ways in order to demonstrate that. Let's work together with the students collaboratively um, to get to the end that you're looking for, but it might not look the way that you thought it would at the beginning. And so um, empowering our teachers to have those really important conversations, but also to just self-evaluate um, am I asking for something that's truly important at this moment, or am I asking for something that that it would just be nice? Um, and and boiling that down, I think is um, I think that's going to be important regardless of the situation in the fall. What what kind of coaching did teacher? I mean, so you just described two skills for us that sound really important. Maybe three skills. One was in an online learning environment, being able to really clearly and concisely articulate instructions, expectations, those kinds of things. Um, a second one was bringing a kind of competency mindset to skills development. Can I, as a teacher, define um, a, a skill and an outcome and then set up a system where students can take multiple pathways to be able to develop and demonstrate that skill? And then can I do a sort of like strategic audit of my curriculum and to be able to sort of figure out what's important, what's not. I, with some educators, I've been using the, the joke of like having a Marie Kondo ceremony of our curriculum where we sort of put our hands on a learning objective and see whether or not it sparks joy and if it doesn't sort of fold it and um, give it away. What, like those, those are those are hard skills. You know, if you if you had asked me before the pandemic, like how long will it take for a teacher to be able 
to develop some proficiency in those kinds of things. You know, a, a kind of stock answer would be well, like the, the research literature suggests it takes like 40 hours of professional development and some number of months to kind of get better at these, at one of those things in any given time, let alone multiple of them. Um, so what what is the professional learning look like for teachers to be able to develop some proficiency? How many, how many of those three things were you all kind of working on anyway? And how much feels new during COVID? Um, well, as far as the transparency goes, that was actually, um, believe it or not, the easier portion because what we did um, over spring break uh, was uh, created a template with the expectations um, already filled out in an example course and essentially encouraged the teachers to borrow whatever um, aspect of that um, template. Like I said, we wanted them to look identical anyway, so a template made the most sense. But also when we were um, rolling out that template and really coaching the teachers how to use it most effectively, um, building out a nine-week curriculum map with all of the expectations built in and then having an expectation for rubrics pre pre-built, um, that pretty much clears up the transparency all by itself, just having that high expectation. What was wonderful about Florida, too, is we had an extra week of spring break. We normally have um, one week. We The governor came in and gave us an extra week, but um, our teachers actually were paid for that second week so that they could actually do that, that development and develop those courses even though a week doesn't sound like a lot, um, five days of solid work uh, with your colleagues can move mountains, really, if that's what you're aiming at. And then as far as the other um, competencies, the fact of the matter is we're a project-based school. So our teachers always are looking to codify those very important super standards, so to speak, um, and make sure that those enduring understandings are outlined way ahead of any kind of learning that the, that, or experience even that the kids are going to be involved in. Um, so that was actually a more natural transition. And then um, we're a very, like, like Latitudes, we are one of the most collegial and collaborative groups of teachers you're ever going to meet. And, um, and there's at no moment at all that you're building a class alone. You're on the phone with, um, with your colleagues and across disciplines and, and what you can't see, um, someone else will help you ferret out or several someone else's will help you ferret out. So I think collegiality is, is huge with regard to that. So you had a, you had a lot of strengths to build on. I mean, I think that's a wonderful way of thinking about these challenges. Is both, um, you know, what are the what are the strengths that our faculties have to build on, and then also what are the strengths that our students have to build on? There's you know, um, there's all kinds of capacity um, for for you know. Um, that often schools take away a lot of the autonomy that in fact, if we offer to students, they're able to take advantage of and um, show their agency and maturity and all of those kinds of things. Um, Lillian, as you look towards next year, what do you feel like are the things that were that you that were most important to learn during the school closures that you and your colleagues are excited to build on in new ways as we do some kind of remote or hybrid learning in the fall? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very much present on our mind right now because we are onboarding a brand new class of 50 new ninth graders, right, who are all chose latitude because of our model of city is our classroom. And so um, having to likely at this moment be predominantly online, at least for the beginning of the school year, is going to challenge that. And I think that um, so I think thinking about how we're going to build relationships with a brand new group of students, how are we going to capture in some ways, like the magic and spirit and sparkle of what makes Latitude different than a conventional high school experience is something that's very much on our minds right now, right? So what do those first few weeks look like by way of um, 
the kinds of projects that are going to feel really relevant and exciting during this time? How can we still be multimodal and sensory in terms of the project work we're asking students to do, right? Like this spring, our design engineering and physics teachers were running around town, like delivering lab supplies and like art materials so students could take on passion projects, right? And so that's something that I think the families and kids all really loved was feeling like they were still creating something tangible. And so I think that's something we're still thinking very much about into the fall. And then again, that community connection piece, right? Like so much of the ninth grade program um, at our school is around visiting different community partners and getting to visit lots of different workplaces to investigate the anthropology of different careers. And so how we can still translate that to the online space is something that really matters to us. Um, and then again, still projects that feel like they have an authentic audience. So this spring, the project that was most well received by our students was um, working with a community partner called Lava May that turns mobile buses, that turns uh, old buses in San Francisco into mobile showers for the homeless community. And so our students, when the shelter in place hit, they had been working on building a tiny house for homeless youth in the Bay Area. And obviously they had to stop building but so our teacher uh, pivoted the project and instead they were designing kind of 3D models of um, communal spaces for this um, tiny house village. And then they presented their final models to our community partners at Lava May, right? So having that authentic audience um, where you had a community partner who's really an expert in this work, be able to give students feedback, but then also like having students feeling like they were working on something that would actually matter to someone in real life in their community on an issue they cared about, right? That was also just generated a lot of motivation. And so we're kind of thinking about how do we build on that for the fall in terms of the projects we're designing? How do we really, again, tap in, and in this moment when it feels like a lot of us don't have bandwidth for the things that just don't matter? How do we really distill down and zoom in on what matters to kids right now? And how do we kind of leverage that in terms of building community and mobilizing students behind a shared sense of purpose? One of the things that I'm hearing from educators I think dovetails quite a bit with what you just said, which is that if you're on campus for seven months and you have these powerful community relationships and you have, you know, in your case, powerful relationship with community partners, then the, you know, one of the advantages you have going into a transition online is that you've done all of this relationship building already that you can, so, you know, you just kind of built up a bank of chips that you can now spend um, in 10 weeks of online learning. Um, it sounds like, building up that entirely or mostly online is one of the things sort of most front of mind, particularly as you're thinking about new ninth graders coming in. Um, are there any particular ideas that you've heard from staff or students or other stakeholders about, you know, starting next year and building community next year that you're really excited about? Um, any, any sort of particular sort of new approaches to that community building that might have to happen online um, that uh, that have stood out to you is like, oh, we really got to think about how we're going to do that in the fall. Well, I think that um, this spring, um, the Dean of Students and myself, we've been doing 30 minute welcome intake calls with all of our new ninth graders to essentially try to get to know them deeply, even before the school year starts. And we are thinking about switching up our advisory structure next year to be mixed grade level and smaller groups to be able to leverage our um, older students to be leaders and mentors and also kind of bring, build a sense of a community for this incoming class. So in some ways, like calling on our existing Latitude students, right, who understand kind of the Latitude way and um, kind of are excited about kind of passing that on to our incoming class in this unusual moment. We think that will kind of give purpose to the older students, but also be another way of welcoming kind of the new students into the into the fold. 
Um, and then we're also, I think, just thinking ahead to what that first week of onboarding might look like. And again, leveraging student leaders, right, as part of like a summer bridge experience or like a first week design challenge, right, that brings together some of the returning students and new students. So, it, so historically, a latitude, um, the advisories would have been in a single grade level, like it'd be a group of ninth graders or things like that. And one of the things you're thinking about shifting is saying, well, let's get some 10th and 11th and 12th graders in the mix there so that these ninth graders, you know, have some role models to, to help bring in. I mean, that sounds, you know, I, what I like so much about that idea is it both, it seems like eminently doable. Um, it, you know, it seems like an important community building strategy and something that, that you sort of pass along to the faculty. And it also just gives more leadership and more responsibility over to students to be able to say, look, we all have to pull together to make, you know, this weird new normal work. Um, and, uh, and we need you. Um, and I, I would imagine that students will, will respond in powerful ways. Angela, what have you all learned at Sci High um, this spring that you're excited about uh, um, bringing into the designs and plans for the fall? Um, definitely we're keeping the transparency, uh, because that not only supports our students who, who need some advanced, um, warning before they engage in something to help them sort of get that background together, but it also helps the kids who really want to leap forward on, on projects. Um, so that kind of thing, um, is, is for sure around to stay. Also, uh, the, just the extent of student voice and that distilling of the things that are really essential, not just distilling them in our own mind, but, but make them student facing. Um, let's have the students be on board with the things that they're, um, that they're hoping to do. And, um, and I, I think that our, our students are really hoping that we go back. We haven't had, we have no word actually in Florida whatsoever. I know that there are many, many, many smart people trying to figure out a way to get the kids back on campus um, for, for multiple reasons, not just um, community and education. But what we found during this COVID crisis is that schools aren't just a place of education, but they really are a lifeboat for a lot of our most fragile um, humans. And, um, and it's our obligation to make sure that they continue to have a lifeboat until we can figure out how to fix the other broken things. Um, and so that... Also, our school is very, um, we're, well, we're an equity project, so we're very asset-minded. Um, and, and having our teachers have these very important conversations with students um, and encouraging them in really dark times to continue leaning on their strengths because they have them and they're very important um, for our community. And so I love, I love William's inclusion of the older students, bringing those um, bringing the young, younger students or the newer students in um, because I also think that um, one of the things we found over this time is having reliable adults. An adult, when you call them, they are going to pick up even if it's at eight o'clock at night and having that sort of extreme reliability. Um, kids respond to that. Uh, that's And particularly the kids who aren't used to that um, respond to that very quickly. So I think that that's that's hugely important. Whatever that means, whatever iteration that that happens in, I think is something that really needs to stay, especially for um, well, especially for the students that benefit from it, which might be all of them. Um, so, and then as far as the um, our community building, 
we're we're kind of thinking along similar lines. How do we um, how do we engage reliably um, as adults, and how do we encourage our students to engage reliably also? Um, because they are they're if they're going to do this work, then they essentially become the face. Which is funny because they always were. Um, you know, if we're going to be serious about it, that's that's what they've always done. Um, for good or for not. So having some intentional training and um, and help with regard to how they, they face our new students is going to be important. But I also am actually very encouraged, and as weird as this sounds, um, a lot of the conversations that we have that are just casual um, are the students mentioning their favorite TikTok artists or Facebook, not really Facebook, but like YouTube, YouTubers is what they call it, which always makes me think of potatoes. But um, so their favorite sort of celebrities, these pseudo celebrities, or real celebrities, I guess, um, and how attached they are to them um, because they're spending so much time with them at home right now. And, and it really heartens me because what that means is that we can actually form um, important bonds with our students through unusual means, um, through means that we might not have thought of before, but that they, when we become, um, when they can count on us, to be at the other end of the screen, whatever that happens to look like. Um, I don't know. I just I find that like my creative um, th my creative thinking kind of gets um, gets really positively spun when I start thinking that we have opportunities that we haven't thought of. But I do think if anyone's going to think of them, um, I need a little cohort of tenth graders to give me some ideas about how to generate a relationship um, in in that way too. So. Um, yeah, using the tools that students are using. So one of the things I heard was inviting students to think about, like, what are the communication mechanisms that they're using right now that we might be able to, as adults, participate in or build community in or or things like that? I mean, in this group of Boston high school students, we ended up talking about, like, well, if there aren't going to be sports teams, can there be video game rec leagues? You know, yeah. can I, if I if I can't play soccer with my friends every afternoon, can I play Fortnite with my teacher and 10 other kids on Tuesday afternoons or something like that? Um, are there other, what other mechanisms have you been setting up in the end of the year or thinking about setting up in the summer to be able to list, to solicit that student voice and student leadership? Are there structures that are yet in place? To, is it all still sort of informal or, or have you started, you know, asking teachers to do certain things or creating structures for students to be able to, to share in the, in the planning and leadership for next year? So right now it's sort of informal. We always, um, so depending on the teacher, we frequently have cohorts of students that are in for um, for think tank sessions or um, tutoring sessions and things like that. So we have kind of a um, a normal flow of, of students to the degree that we can right now safely. Um, but as far as the formalized structures with regard to that, we haven't set those up yet. That's great. Um, well, this has been a really rich and exciting conversation. I mean, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing from it is that you know both of you have helped to build and lead schools um, that are sort of organized around project-based learning. They're organized around community connections. They're organized around thinking about where you want students to end up and how different students will take different pathways to get there. Um, and you're able to sort of build and adapt on those kind of well-established models, even in the midst of, you know, 
lots and lots of, of difficulties, especially the incredible difficulties of being at a distance from kids, you know, for whom being connected is like one of the main reasons that we, we do this kind of work anyway. Um, are there, are there things as you sort of look at kind of the larger landscape of schools? Are you, are there things that you're hoping, um, that your community does or your family does or the state will do or like what, what other supports do you need or would you hope to have from sort of outside the school building to be able to make, uh, make next year be as successful as possible? Um, William, have you thought at all about what, what else you're hoping the, the, the rest of the world, the rest of your community might be able to do to make this easier for you? Gosh, I, I have to be honest. I think in this moment when I feel like there's actually a lot of lack of leadership coming from um, other structures and a lot of lack of clarity, just even in terms of what data to trust, I think more than ever, we're really having to focus on how do we build up our own community to be, to be strong during this time. Um, like Angela, you know, I think that what has been in some ways the secret sauce of what's allowed us to make the transition, um, you know, as strong as it has been is the fact that we meet every day as a staff, right? So we, you know, even before all of this, our team met daily before students arrived for, um, from eight to 8.45. And we've kind of kept that sacred even with the transition. And I think that's been really important for us to be able to communicate at a time when communication is hard. It's allowed us to calibrate and kind of be quick to make adjustments and adaptations when things aren't working and then to share best practices and be able to innovate quickly and spread ideas quickly, right? But I think more than anything else, actually, it's actually about how do we maintain morale and a sense of um, meaning and, and give people a space to process and do meaning making at a time when things are so confusing and people's emotions are all over the place, right? So I think that, I guess I would say that, you know, rather than looking outward, we've actually been really focused on how do we keep and sustain our community to be strong? And that's the students, um, it's the families. We've had a lot of town hall meetings with families, right? And um, just helping families to connect with our mental health providers so that they can think about strategies they can use to um, really support their students, their own kids at home during this time. But I also just think we really need to tend to the well-being of our teachers, right? Like I think that in these conversations right now, it can often feel like, yes, it's about the students. And if we aren't keeping our um, staff healthy, both kind of physically and mentally during this time, if they can't be centered, they can't be anchored for the students either, right? So how are we, as, as school leaders, how are we really tending to that and sustaining that is something that's very much on my mind. Yeah, there, there, I've been amazed in the last few months at sort of how much teachers have given um, to their colleagues, to their communities, to their students, to their families. And I do just have in the back of my head, like there, there is a limit to that amount of energy, like that cannot be sustained forever. Um, and, uh, but certainly, you know, one of the, you know, the more, the more meaningful it feels to be doing that work, the better supported people are, the, the deeper the wells that we can find in ourselves to, um, stay up till 10 o'clock at night playing Pictionary <laughs> with our students and get up at 8 a.m. in the morning the next day for staff meeting and those kinds of things. Um, Angela, have you thought at all about, you know, what other kinds of structures with, with families, with school leadership, with district leadership, with communities, um, that you feel like are needed to, to be successful next year? Um, like Lillian, it would be great if we had some kind of decisive leadership with regard to, um, you know, and timely leadership, I guess, also um, to make those important plans. Um, also, we we are leaning hard inward. Um, I actually feel very, very fortunate um, because in our 
environments and, and Lillian's too, um, spending time at Latitudes, being student centered is sort of a saving grace in this, in this environment because um, you never wonder why you're doing it. Um, when the student calls who really is struggling or really having a hard time, that's why you're doing it. Um, you're not doing it because you can crank out virtual learning material. None of us have signed up for that. And, and that's probably the least favorite thing of, of all of the tasks. And the most favorite being those times when you can rush in and support, um, support students. What I think, um, I don't, I don't know about Sci High in particular, um, because I feel like, I feel like we have, um, we have what we need at this moment, and we also know that we can trust each other to get what we need, even if it means crawling across the country to um, get another brain on on an idea. Um, so I, I do feel very fortunate that I have that kind of collegialness, um, collegiality inside my school and outside my school as well. Um, I do think, though, that now is an excellent time for a little bit of a teacher revolution with regard to that kind of collegiality. like making it okay to share um, ideas and plans and feedback and receiving feedback and just being the most generous human being and professional that you can possibly muster. I think now is a great time for that, not just because um, our students could use it, but also because it makes the difference in your own core um, when that's where you're standing. It, it changes everything. No, that is a wonderful note to end on that if we can, um, there, there are pockets of schools in this country where that is absolutely the norm, and there are other places where that is not always uh, the practice. And it, and it seems like if we that, that the wonderful thing about bringing that spirit of generosity to our colleagues is that if you're in a place where that exists, um, then you're not just taking care of yourself. You've got you know another dozen or two dozen or eighty educators who are looking after you as well. Um, and those are the best kinds of places to to feel like you're working in. Um, well, Angela and Lillian, this has been an incredibly rewarding conversation. It sounds like you've done an amazing job in your communities taking care of each other and students during these challenging times. And I'm really grateful for the chance to, to learn from you and to add to my list of things that I'm, I'm thinking about and trying to share as we all uh, work together over the summer to get ready for the, for the fall. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Lillian Sue, founding principal at Latitude, and Angela Daniel, instructional coach and design thinking project strategist at SciHi. These are both terrific schools with deep commitments to equity, to listening to and honoring student voice, that use project-based approaches to learning, that held high expectations for students while finding multiple pathways for students to be able to achieve those high expectations. And certainly as I listen to that conversation, the thing that strikes me is how those kinds of core values really lend themselves to success uh, during this crazy period of emergency remote learning. And then I suspect also in whatever forms of hybrid learning we face in the summer and fall ahead. If you want to learn more about these schools, we've got some great documentary videos about them in our massive open online course, Becoming a More Equitable Educator, uh, which you can sign up for on edX. Um, we're also releasing the course on MIT's Open Learning Library. Uh, so you can go there and on the Open Learning Library, the course resources have no start dates and end dates. They're just always available. And all the materials of the course are openly licensed, so you can reuse them and remix them to your heart's content. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Teach Lab to get future episodes on how educators from all walks of life 
are tackling distance learning during COVID-19. This episode of Teach Lab was produced by Amy Corrigan and Garrett Beasley, recorded and sound mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe until next time. Thank you.